I'm Amy Carson, and this is The Balance, Understanding Nonprofit Finance. On today's episode, Diana Breen joins me to talk about managing finances during a leadership transition. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Balance. My guest today is Diana Breen. She is the transition whisperer and a career interim executive director. Welcome, Diana. Oh, thank you for having me, Amy. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you, Diana. So excited to have you on today. Can you tell us a little bit about the transition whisperer? Can you tell us a little (laughs) bit about who you are, what you do, who you work with? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a career interim executive director. I stabilize nonprofits in leadership transition or crisis by serving as the interim executive director or the CEO. I'm currently the interim ED at Include NYC, which provides resources for children with disabilities and their families. And this is my fifth interim ED position. Uh, Previously, I was the long-term executive director at Ariva which provided financial stability to low-wealth families in the South Bronx. I uh, have an MPA in nonprofit management, which sure does come in handy, and also a certificate in diversity and inclusion from Cornell. I'm also a very proud and active board member of Grant Street Settlement. Very, very cool. I find this extraordinary. I was checking you out on LinkedIn, and I see your background's in, in music, correct? Yeah, you know that- yeah. But yet you're doing cash flow projections. I'm thoroughly impressed. So how do you get from music to cash flow projections? Well, you know, I I do love music. But um, when I graduated from college, I realized I played the flute very well. But I did not know how to turn that into a career. (laughs) And um, meanwhile, I worked for a nonprofit called NYPIRG, New York Public Interest Research Group. It's a social justice nonprofit. And I worked fundraising. I worked canvassing, going door to door. Wow. Um, yeah, raising, you know, awareness and funds to um, uh, refund the uh, Superfund initiative. And I broke their fundraising record. And uh, wow. yeah, and then when I, I graduated, they, uh, you know, they offered me a, a full-time job. So, and I loved it, you know, and I, I've, yeah. um, except for a brief stint with the city government. I've been in the nonprofit sector the whole time. So how did you get into this line of work and how long are your engagements usually? Oh yeah, good questions. Um, you know, I realized that being the long-term executive director, the regular ED, just, you know, it really wasn't for me. I was at a terrific organization with terrific people. We did great work. And um, I just, you know, I started getting a little bored. And so (laughs) somebody told me about a training for interim executive leadership at an organization called the Support Center here in New York City. And um, I was actually 38 weeks pregnant when I took the training. And then, uh, gosh, the timing just worked out uh, perfectly. There was a posting for an interim director position at Marquee Studios. And so when my daughter was three months old, I became their interim ED after, unfortunately, their founding ED had passed away from cancer. Yeah, there were some really some big shoes to fill there. And, um, you know, the the time it takes in an interim position, it really ranges depending on the organization where they are. So my longest position was about 16 months. Okay. And that was an organization that I started in COVID and I ended in COVID. 
And my shortest was about two months. They had already hired the incoming AD, but they knew that she couldn't start for a couple of months. So I filled the gap there. Got it. And in my, you know, we've talked and in my line of work, we do outsourced accounting and financial management. And sadly, people are typically not calling us because everything's working great. Um, There's usually an (laughs) issue or a situation or some kind of challenge that we come in to help solve. I have to assume it's the same with you, correct? There's something happening, whether someone's leaving or is that accurate? Why are you typically called in? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a whole range of situations. I, you know, I named a few, but you know, another big reason is that it takes a long time to do a thoughtful search to find an executive director. I will say it always takes longer than the boards think it will always. And so, you know, that example I said where it was 16 months yeah. I remember in the interview process, a board told a board member said, oh, it's probably three or four months. And I smiled and said, okay. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, by the time a board, a board signs on the dotted line with a search firm, it usually takes at least six months before the incoming ED is sitting at the seat. And that's a long time for an organization to go without a leader. So you really need somebody to to come in and make sure that everybody's headed in the same direction in the meantime. And I would think you don't you don't want to be rushed. If I'm the board of directors, I don't want to be, even though I feel so under the gun because maybe someone's left unexpectedly or what have you, I would think the beauty of hiring you would be they get peace of mind and they they can probably they can take their time a bit because they know that the organization has proper stewardship and leadership. So I feel like peace of mind is everything. You're absolutely right, Amy. And it's, you know, when you have somebody steering the ship, they don't have to worry about the day-to-day stuff, which they shouldn't have to be in as board members. They can really take their time, make sure that they're finding the right candidate, make sure that the candidate feels really comfortable, make sure that the staff are involved in an appropriate manner in the search and, and everybody can really know that it's done the right way. And so what are the key challenges that you usually find? Or are are there like a few things that you see like across every organization? Yep, I'm going to see this. Or (laughs) what what do you find when you get in? Absolutely. One thing I find is that there's usually a dip in the staff morale. Um, And sometimes in the, you know, in the organizational culture, it's challenging. A big part of that is often because there's a lack of communication. And if you've ever been in an organization where there's a, a leadership transition, that's scary, right? Yeah. You don't you don't know who the new person is coming in. You don't know what's going on in the organization. You don't know if you're still going to have your job or your boss is going to leave or if the expectations are going to change. And so one thing I do to support staff is I, I always promise people I'm as transparent as appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, t- what I've learned too, is that sometimes even if there's no news, you still have to share that with people. That's you fair. still have to say no big updates. We're still on track for this. Uh, just to, just so people understand what's going on because all of this really affects them and affects their, their every day at the organization. So that's one thing. Another issue is, um, sometimes there are staff management challenges. I like to say that transitions are like weddings. They bring out the best in people and they bring out the worst in people. <laughs> You're going to find some staff who really step up and really flex those leadership muscles. And sometimes they're even, you know, frontline or junior staff, but you you really see them shine. And then you also see people who have a very tough time yeah. with a transition. And 
you know, I've had to tell multiple staff, uh, yes, you do have to meet with your supervisor. No, you can't yell at people in staff meetings. Right. (laughs) I know. I know. So those are two things, you know, I, I will say too, sometimes the finances are an issue. You know, you look under a rock and you, and you see something else, you see something new. Um, I've been in organizations where there have been patterns of annual deficits um, for organizations that have heavy dependence on government grants. Of course, there are cash flow issues. And sometimes, you know, the boards are, um, they're so used to the scarcity that, you know, it, it takes some work to make them understand, you know, we could actually work our way to a budget surplus. Yes, yep. here, right? If we make yep. sustainable strategic decisions, we can do it. Um, so it's um, it's very rewarding to make an impact in those areas. That makes sense. And I would think that just a fresh set of eyes on the books and records and the finances can potentially be a massive benefit to the organization. And so I guess just along those lines, this is a podcast around nonprofit finance. What, what, When you're walking into an organization, what is typically the structure? I guess you're working with organizations of all different shapes and sizes and in different sectors. So is there in-house staff? Is there an outsourced function? And maybe talk, if you could just talk about high level, some of your experiences with different finance and accounting departments or teams. Yeah, of course. I, and you're right. It's, it's a, it, there are various models. So I've worked at an organization where they've outsourced their mm-hmm. accounting. Um, and, you know, with that, you, you really get, um, I think, you know, a, a more sophisticated uh, services in terms of financial services. You also want to make sure that, you know, the people that are assigned to your team are the right fit for your team, right? Yep. I've also worked with organizations where they've had one finance person or one director of operations who were doing the financial management, and that person didn't have formal financial training. So in those cases, you know, um, I thought, okay, well, here's how you do cash flow projections. Here's how you analyze them, right? And um, that's great because they're they're using those those methods to this day. And where I am now at Include NYC, um, we have a senior director of finance who's very skilled and very experienced. And, you know, she's worked at bigger organizations. She's worked in the corporate sector. So um, she's got it. So it's been been variety. That's very cool. And so fundraising and finance go hand in hand. And if you're, I would argue, the most successful fundraisers do understand um, kind of some of the complications of finance and the the value of forecasting and the value of strategic planning and all of that. So I'm curious kind of how that all works when you come into, if you're able to come into a new organization and understand how to do cash flow projections and financial modeling and do you have examples of experiences where you've been able to kind of take some of those skills that you've acquired through the years a- and apply them? And like, how does that work? Yeah, you know, it, it, I will say that one of the one of the reasons why I love this kind of career, I feel like I'm I found what I meant to do, is that you're able to take all the best practices and all the lessons learned from every position and bring it to the organization where you are now. So you know regarding the intersection between fundraising and finance. You know, we've brought up cash flow and government grants and, and that's a big challenge for organizations. So 
you know, now I'm able to say, all right, well, look to this organization for a bridge loan, or, you know, we can do this until the government grant comes in. And, you know, do we really want to, let's have this strategic discussion. Do we really want to be so reliant on government grants? I love that. Like <laughs> diversification, we say this all the time when we move into a new client that's almost exclusively or 90% government funded. We're like, this is not a sustainable business no. model because especially, and lately, I don't know, I feel like it's gotten worse. I mean, it can take a year to get reimbursed on some of these reimbursement grants oh, yeah. and that can put an organization out of business. And so Absolutely. I would think that your background in fundraising kind of bringing this concept of diversification to an organization or thinking about other revenue streams to help float these short-term cash flow needs, that must be huge. Absolutely. And, you know, not only is it tough for the cash flow, but, you know, to manage government grants is no. it's just <laughs> like, I need, I need another cup of coffee just to think about it. I mean, it's onerous, right? But it's, you know, it's also interesting because as an interim AD, I have to take a very strategic approach to the fundraising mm -hmm. because, you know, anybody who does fundraising, you know, it's about relationships. So I don't want to be the funder program officer's main relationship with the organization because when I leave, I don't want to take that relationship with me. So I really work strategically to make sure that the funders have those relationships with the existing staff and board members. So those relationships stay within the organization. So you really have to come in, kind of help steer the ship, maybe turn it sometimes, but you also have to be very hands-off while in the process. Because I would argue that that point about fundraising, which is totally intuitive to me, I would argue it's applicable kind of across across sectors. Like, so you you really need to empower the leaders of each of the different areas of the organization to kind of help them almost kind of help guide and tr maybe train them in certain instances, but with a very kind of hands-off approach. That has to be challenging. A lot of fun, I would think, but challenging. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, um, I don't know, in some ways it's easier to do, but in some ways it's harder to do, right? Yeah. You have to lead from behind a little bit. And are you ever walking into situations where you're like, oh my gosh, I, I, I don't understand the financial statements here, or there's concern from the board that they don't understand the financial statements and you're... Oh, yeah. Um, can I tell you, I have two stories that come to mind. Please. Sure some... <laughs> Please. Okay. So I, I was at one organization and, um, you know, I came in, I don't know, maybe two months into their new fiscal year. And I'm looking at their finances from the previous year. And I'm like, hmm, all right, they have a, a surplus, great, but their projected revenue and projected expenses are much lower than anticipated. What is happening here? Mm. Nobody really knew. I dug in, I dug in deeper. And what I realized was that they had this very big government grant that they weren't spending down in time. Yep. <laughs> I see the look on your face. Yep. And I think... Oh no, you know, first of all, when it comes to renewal time, why would this funder renew us if we can't spend down what they've already given? But also we have to, you know, spend it down. So we can, obviously, so we can serve our clients and deliver these services, but also we can't, you know, count on this funding if we don't spend it down. And so I raised the alarm with the board. I raised the alarm with the staff. And it's, you know, it's really surprising to me that nobody had looked at this. and. Right seen this as an issue. 
And at this organization, I was there only for about three months. It was okay. a short time. Uh, they have a terrific executive director in place. And she told me that they actually had to, you know, lay off some staff or, or cut part time because wow. exactly what I said would happen, happens. happens. And, yep. you know, I asked, is there anything differently I could have done? She said, no, it's just that, you know, the alarm was raised. It should have been raised way before you came, you that know, makes a lot of sense. So uh, it's sad because, you know, if people had asked different questions or really probed that, you know, could have been saved. I'll share you another, uh, another instance with you. Um, another example in this organization, they had had a pattern of annual operating deficits. Mm-hmm. And I came in and I looked at the earned revenue that they were bringing in. Mm-hmm. And that was smaller <laughs> than the expenses they were spending to deliver those programs, to deliver this portfolio. And this is actually one of the few examples where the program department was actually overstaffed. Yep. They were, <laughs> yep. you, you say knowingly. <laughs> It was very clear to me in, a, in just a few weeks of working with the staff, you know, there's not enough here for everybody here to have a full-time job. There's just not enough programming here. No wonder why you have annual deficits because you're losing money on this business model. And, um, you know, in transitions, sometimes, sometimes things change and the culture changes. And this is one of the organizations where I had to tell staff, Yes, you do have to meet with your supervisor. No, you can't yell at people and staff meetings. And so some of the staff resigned, which was a blessing. You know, you always hope that when it's not a good fit, they take it upon themselves to move on. And then there was a situation where, um, you know, somebody did have to, um, I had to let her go because she wasn't bringing enough and didn't have as much of a portfolio to cover the expenses. Uh, well, I will say that in in all of that work and making it more efficient, um, I got the organization a budget surplus. That's that year. awesome. Yes. All it took was just having a strategic business model and really, yes. you know, looking at the right questions. And looking at the numbers. And I, I would argue why I love numbers so much is that it takes, they're completely objective. There's no, there's no emotion to them. There's no interpretation. And so to your point about the program, you know, your earned income being less than the expenses associated with those specific programs, it actually just becomes very cut and dry. Like, Hey, I'm sorry. (laughs) Like your revenue is this expenses are this, we need to cut expenses. Let's figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. So I love that. And, and to me, it just, it becomes very, it's like very clear and it's very easy almost What I find fascinating is, and what we try to do anytime we go into a new organization is, I think ownership is key. So like the director of programs should play an integral role in setting their budget, but then they should be responsible for managing against their budget. And therefore they need to see a budget versus actuals on a monthly basis. So they see like, you know, our earned revenue target was a million dollars and we're at $200,000, 200000 dollars 10 months into the year, but our expenses are trending according to budget. So, like, what is happening here? So I right. think having like ownership across the different mm-hmm. levels can kind of mitigate some of that. But yes, that must be so fulfilling for you just to be able to come in and say, I'm actually gonna look at the numbers and like here we are. It's pretty clear. <laughs> so now what's the role? I'm curious what the role of the board are you hired? You're hired by the board of directors, I assume. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. That's right. 
Okay. And then, so what, what does your interplay become with the board of directors? I'm thinking once again, like from my vantage point, like I'm thinking the finance committee must be like all over you from day one. Like what is happening here? (laughs) Like what is... Can you help us? Because a lot of times I would have to assume lack of clarity. Well, and, and you've said as well, lack of fiscal clarity is is typically a big thing. We're almost always called in because of lack of fiscal clarity. Um, mm. So I'm curious how these relationships typically work. Yeah, you know, I my relationship with the board and board committees is very similar to how a you know, regular, a long term AD would work. I am hired by the board. I meet regularly with the board chair and leadership. I'm usually the one who works with the committee chairs to say, you know, on the finance committee, you know, we have to decide this strategic question, you know? So some examples I've raised to committees before are, should we be closing the office, you know, because money is pouring out and it's not being used. Is is there a more cost-effective solution? Um, When we have, you know, staffing issues, like I just shared with you, you know, here are some programmatic efficiencies where we could really be more financially sustainable and, and still achieve our mission. Cash flow is often a big topic. And that's something that, you know, my finance staff and I will raise to the committees. And right. then um, of course, it's always the board's decision to hire the long-term AD, but I also do a lot of support with them. And um, sometimes I interview the final candidates I always try to make sure that the staff are involved in appropriate ways so they get to meet some final candidates yeah. and provide some input. They're not they're not deciding, they're not voting. Of course, but it's helpful. But, um, sometimes people get confused about that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's the board's decision. And then I have a time-tested onboarding process for the incoming executive director to help them get the ground running on day one. And are you ever involved in restructuring the finance or accounting function? Or is that a bit outside your wheelhouse? In general, in transitions, there's so much that's disruptive already. You want to stabilize things as much as possible. Got it. So I always go in thinking, I hope this structure works for this organization. Yeah. There are times when, for instance, I've made recommendations to the Mm -hmm. incoming executive director, in particular at times when my stint as the interim ED was short. Yes. So it didn't make sense for me to make this change. But at one organization, we had a a part-time CFO and a part-time bookkeeper. They were offsite. And um, it was challenging working with a part-time CFO for several reasons. And I recommended they make a change. Do you find that in these roles, you're spending time with the CFO or the director of finance or how does that relationship work? Are they, I would have to assume that they would maybe play an integral role in helping inform you and like help you understand like how to do this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm relying on that person to show me how it works at this organization at this point in time. Right. And then, you know, um, as I mentioned, sometimes if it's an organization where they don't have as, as sophisticated or you know, formally trained staff, you know, I train them on certain methods, you know, in the, in this one instance where the CFO was offsite, it was so hard to be in touch with him. I, I wasn't getting the information I needed. And I realized that the budgeting method they were using was completely off and not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in that instance, I made a change or recommended a change. I know that for us, when we were growing this company, it was very very hard. It took us years, I would argue, to figure out 
the different roles and the different skill sets that went with the different roles. Yeah. So I would have to assume that like, because a lot of times we're called in and like I said before about like just this lack, there's a lack of clarity and we don't think the the current accountant or the current bookkeeper is doing a good job. And we'll walk in and we're like, we'll, we'll look and we'll say, wait a minute, <laughs> the bookkeeper is doing a great job as a bookkeeper, but you are expecting this individual to behave as a CFO. They are not a CFO. Sure. They are a bookkeeper. Yeah. Um, or like on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, we have a CFO who is a CFO, but is behaving like a bookkeeper yes. and but has the <laughs> skill set of the CFO. So it took us a really long time to figure out that there's different skill sets associated with different roles. There's a difference between actually an accounting background, which is backwards looking and a finance background, which is forward looking. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a financial analyst. I do all our forecasting and projections. My partners are CPAs. They'll close the books. They'll make sure everything's clean. I would have to think, and like I said, I'm, I'm in this for years and I still find it confusing and it's hard. I would have to think this would be very challenging for you to come in. And it seems like you're figuring it out, which is extraordinary. <laughs> but I would have to think it would be very challenging to come in and figure all of this out. Like, is this properly staffed, like, to enable you to make these recommendations going forward? So I'm curious, at, like, I'm just curious kind of what your process is or what your thoughts are on all of this. Yeah, you know, that's a good question, Amy. I mean, it depends. But it's also like, sometimes the answers are kind of obvious. Like where I'm working right now, we have a senior director of finance who's terrific. Mm -hmm. We have a finance program or mid-level um, finance manager helping her. But I can already tell I'm just a few weeks in and I'm like, oh, she has a very heavy workload. We need to get this person more support because I also see that there are some changes that we need to make systematically in the finances she doesn't have the time on her plate to make those needed changes. So, so, it, you know, sometimes it's just very clear like that. And then sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, when you think, well, you know, the organization needs someone who has, you know, A through H and this person has A through G. Do you really want to, you know, say goodbye? Not really. So how can we fill this Rock other gap? Yep. What can we, Right. You know, especially in a transition, you really don't want to rock that boat so much if you don't yep. have to. You try and find what supports, you know, or what training you can provide. It's, I mean, it's really intriguing. And, you know, we did, I did work with an outsourced organization before. We had three main people on our team. Two of them were fantastic. Oh, amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful for their help, their sophistication, their expertise. And the one person there who was doing the bookkeeping, I realized kept making mistakes. You know? yep. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you're going to be a bookkeeper, you really have to get the numbers right. <laughs> Attention to detail is like the whole thing. Right, exactly. Right. And so, you know, in that case, I had to ask after addressing this several times already, it came to a point where we can't continue like this. And I requested a change to that team and we got somebody new and, and that worked better. That's really cool. I, and, I, but, and I think that understanding all the different options that are out there based on the team that you have makes a lot of sense. So like you have a strong director of finance right now. That's extraordinary and huge. And if you were to need bookkeeping support that you can go out and find on an outsource basis. If you need, there's also firms that provide interim CFO mm -hmm. type support if you needed to, you know, kind of do things 
in tandem or so I think, yeah, knowing all the different levers that you can pull and just understanding the different roles and the functions of the different roles and the skill sets required. I, I feel like that's so, so, so important. So do you ever get pushback from the staff on making changes as an interim? Yeah, I get pushback a lot. Uh, <laughs> I think it's just the nature of the job. And my approach is always, um, I try and get input from staff and board members to inform decisions. And I'm as transparent as appropriate. So I will let people know. I will keep people updated in stages and, and layers as need be. So, you know, things aren't a surprise, right? And, yeah. you know, at that organization where the program expenses were bigger than the program revenue, you know, it wasn't a surprise to the staff when the staff positions weren't refilled or somebody was let go because they were updated all along that there were these challenges. So if I'm hearing you correctly, so it's, the communication and it's just trying mm -hmm. to maintain the status quo and make the changes feel natural. Yeah. And you know, it's something else um, your question makes me think of too, is that you can't please everybody, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. The anniversary of George Floyd's murder came up recently. And you'll remember that was right on the hill heels of that racist shooting in Buffalo. And so I spoke with some staff before and um, I thought, you know, what if we just spent some time in our upcoming staff meeting just for reflection? And one person said, you know, it might be good. You know, this can be triggering. So give people the option to participate or not participate in any way mm -hmm. they're comfortable. That's where we kind of landed. And that's what we did. And I sent out a survey to staff, an anonymous survey. Just saying, hey, you know, I've been here for a month. How's it going? What should I keep doing? What should I stop doing? What should I start doing? And some people wrote in, thank you so much for having that reflection time and the staff meeting. We really appreciated mm. it. It was so great. And some people wrote, I don't think you should have had that reflection time in the staff meeting. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. You know? yep. So, um, you know, it's tough because people feel different things about different decisions. So I think just maybe one final wrap-up question. Are there any financial problems or situations that you see consistently as an interim ED mm -hmm. and maybe ways that organizations can be better addressing them so that when a transition happens, they're better prepared? I, I mean, this is when we zoom out. But one of the recurring issues I see in organizations is cash flow management. And again, that stems from the timing of payments from government funders. And I, I think it's a sin that government funders wait so long to... It's to, shameful. It's shameful. 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 And, you know, here I am and, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of EDs and interim EDs like me spending yeah. time on cash flow management, you know, with our board members, with our staff, instead of actually achieving the mission. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, one thing we, uh, we nonprofits can do is, I mean, just try and have a forward thinking cash flow management model, you know, try and squirrel away your surpluses to help you bridge those gaps, you know, look into 
financing options before you need one, get a line of credit before you need one. Yeah. Hints go with local banks. Those are usually yep. a better choice. Yeah. But the other yep, part yep. is the government funders really need to step up. You know, it's ludicrous. The the time and energy that we waste on trying to make sure our staff who are doing the work get paid. I mean, is it's a shame and um, that needs to be fixed. It's crazy. But Diana, thank you so much. This was awesome. Oh. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was actually so much fun. I can't tell you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Balance. I'm your host, Amy Carson. You can learn more about our company, Brand K Partners, and what we do at brandkpartners.com. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, and this episode was produced by David Hoffman. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann and production managed by Gabriella Montekin. If you like the show, never miss an episode by subscribing on all your favorite podcast apps and please leave a rating and a review. See you next time.